If you serve a great God, say amen. Amen. Uh, if you look around and uh, maybe you didn't get the memo, uh, a lot of us are wearing like a range of red, uh, red and white, and uh, it's really just to commemorate uh, the loss of in, in the tragedy, in the wake of the tragedy that would have happened at the Covenant School uh, this past week. Um, you know, you, you empathize with things from a distance, but when it becomes close, when it's close to home, uh, it's a little bit different. And so, you know, we, we, we empathize when we hear of shootings in different cities and different places. Uh, this was Nashville. This, this, was, this was our town. This was our city. This was our neighborhood. These were our constituents. This, this was our community. And so, uh, we just wanted to take the opportunity to recognize that and uh, to bind together and trust in God in the midst of such tragedy. I want to ask you just to remain standing for about 10, 20, 25 more seconds. Uh, as I read this text, I'm going to take my brief exhortation this morning directly from this text. The text is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, and specifically verse number one, first, first Timothy chapter one, and specifically verse number one. I'm reading from the good old faithful King James Bible. There Paul would say as he opens his epistle to the young evangelist Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Repeat that one more time. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Church, for the next few minutes, I want to encourage you on the sermon, a short message I've entitled, Jesus is our hope. You may have your seats. The Apostle Paul, as he begins in his greeting to the young evangelist Timothy, makes a declaration immediately into his writing that carries so much weight throughout his letter, his own life, and the lives of every single one of the believers that would read this letter thereafter. Paul sees it fit to remove any sort of misconception, though I believe Timothy would have had no misconception, but he saw it fit by inspiration as he is writing this epistle, this, this letter. He wants to remove any sort of misconception of who he is and any perceived power or authority he had in immediately pointing to the one who called him, who gave him a charge, and the one in whom we all place our confidence. Right there within the confines of verse number one in that sentence, Paul is confessing as loudly as he can that there was, uh, without God, there was no calling. With, without God, there was no Christ. With, without God, there was no confidence. The testimony of Paul and the takeaway for us, therefore, is this. There can be no me 
without God. I can't do this on my own. All that I have and all that I am is because of God. Time and time again, church, he, he would echo the sentiments that he expresses, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 10, where he boldly declares, by the grace of God, I am who I am. So Paul looks at, uh, people look at their past, sorry, to their own detriment as, as it is, but uh, as in Paul's instances, Paul's instance, sorry, he doesn't look back at his past and bring about or dwell in grief and guilt. However, he looks back at his past and his heart is filled with gratitude. So when Paul addresses Timothy very early on in the book, he simply states his name and his position, but he hurriedly goes to the, to the person to whom gave him the position to begin with. He says, Paul, an apostle, one who has been commissioned or called by God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. If Paul is to be anything, if Paul has to have any authority, if Paul is to see himself as being worthy, it's only because of God and because of Jesus Christ. Is there anyone here that could testify to the fact that because of God, you know you have what you have today. Because of God, you know you have your health. It's only because of God, you know you have your spouse. It's only because of God, you know you have your child. Because of God, you know you have the finances that you have in your account. You know that the only reason why you are here is because of God. Maybe, maybe that didn't fit too well with you, but, but maybe there might be somebody here who knows it's only because of God you stop slashing your wrist. It's only because of God you stop dwelling your sorrows, drowning your sorrows in the bottle. It was only because of God you didn't give up on life. You didn't give up on yourself. You didn't give up on people. It was only because of God. That's so important because as I think about the events, as we think about the events of, of this past week, I, I need for us to appreciate when we think about innocent kids and innocent people losing their lives in the way that they, in the way that they, did, that they did, when you pick up the newspaper and you look at the news to see how human beings act and can react, it could bring us to a place where we lose faith and we lose confidence and we lose hope in humanity. But here is the harsh reality truth as I was thinking about this all week long and even as we had our memorial service on Wednesday, the, the truth is something was, was really bothering me all week long and I couldn't put my finger on it, Todd, until maybe about three in the morning today. Because when you read the news, when you, when you read the newspaper and you listen to the news, they, they would say that six individuals lost their life on that day. But church, I would have us to know it wasn't six individuals that lost their life in the tragedy. It was actually seven. And while one person might have been the perpetrator of the ghastly act, while one person may have been the offender and others may have been the victims, I need for us to appreciate this if we can't see it with sincere and open and spirit-filled eyes that the individual who was the perpetrator what may have been the one who got away from God, may have been the one who got away from us because while we were busy doing our own stuff, we weren't busy trying to minister 
to this young lady. The church has become a place, and I'm not saying this is Antioch, but I'm just saying in general, the church has become a place that is filled with all the wrong things as opposed to filled with the right things. What do I mean by that? I mean as opposed to being filled, uh, a place that's filled with love, as opposed to being a place that is filled with hope, as opposed to being a place that's filled with camaraderie, as opposed to being a place that's filled with guidance, as opposed to being a place that's filled with the Holy Spirit. The church is filled with everything else. It's easy to come and find somebody who could condemn you in the church. It's easy to find somebody who could judge you in the church. It's easy to come and find somebody who could isolate you and separate you in the church. The church has taken up a position that the church was never meant to take up to begin with. And so here it is. I, I, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that the, the, the church is fully to blame, but I'm saying if we understand that we have a job to do and, and we have people that are out there dying, people who are out there drowning, people who are out there frustrated, people who are out there without hope, the church has something to give to the world, to people who are without hope. So I sat and I thought about this all week long. I tried to figure out, Jose, what was bothering me? What was bothering me? What was bothering me? And here, here's what was bothering me, church, as I really tried to put Words to the emotions that I felt. What was bothering me is that oftentimes, and I'm not saying it's going to happen every time, but oftentimes we, because we have not embraced an attitude and a heart of true compassion and love, we would so readily jump on a high horse to talk about the standard of scripture and not realize that the standard of scripture sits and is built on agape love. So, so, so here, is the, here is the truth. Tim, can I talk to you as a young person? Let me, let me talk to my young folks here for a little bit. Here, here is the truth. Young people, and the statistics are there to prove it. Young people, more and more young people aren't gravitating to the church. Why is that? Because as they struggle with their issues, you have an older generation that looks to them and turns our nose down at them and we say, well, you guys don't really know what life is all about. Well, guess what? When I was younger, I struggled with life too. And I know that there are some silver-haired people here as well. Yes, you got married, and yes, you had the family, and yes, you owned the home, and yes, you eventually got things together. But look at you when you were a teenager. Oh, how quickly some of us forget. The church has to learn how to deal and treat with individuals who are struggling with sensuality and sexuality. The easy position to take is that's ungodly and so we don't want that to come here. Whereas God is saying you may have to walk with somebody who, 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 who has a sin that's different from the ones that you think are not too bad sins. Because Christians have this uncanny ability to waste sins and some sins are apparently bigger than others. So we could tell a little lie and that's okay. But the person who is practicing a certain lifestyle, they're destined for a devil's hell. We could be lazy and that's okay. But the person who is struggling with same-sex attraction, they are destined for a devil's hell. We, we could be gluttons and that's okay. 
But the person who is a part of the, 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 the LGBT community, they, they are pushed off to the side and they are not worthy to come into the presence of God. It's interesting how we could add weight to certain sins and bury other people that might be struggling with something that we don't necessarily struggle with. But I'll tell you this, if, if we were to be treated the way that we, and I, you know, when I say we, please understand what I'm saying, I'm talking about Christendom, Christians, if, if we were to be treated when we were going through the issues of our life and the sins that were prevalent in our life, if we were to be treated the way that we treat others, you and I wouldn't have been here today. Because it took somebody who saw you as a young lady, all promiscuous and stuff, and uh, you, you, you gave your virginity up quickly. Uh, it, it took somebody to walk alongside you and say, that's okay, God could work in your life. It, it took somebody to walk alongside a man who didn't know what it was to be a man, to be a good husband, to be a good father, and walk alongside that man to one day, eventually that man becoming an elder. It took somebody to walk alongside some of us. But what really bothered me about this, if I'm being honest with you guys, is it's easy for us to, to choose sides as, a, as opposed to seeing what's really at stake, and that's the souls of individuals. As a black person, it breaks my heart every time I see something like this happen, and it, it's a black person on the other end, because I identify with, that could have been me. But as a white person, I'm looking at it now and I'm, I'm saying regardless of skin color, I was one instance of abuse probably away from being in this same position. Many of us were one heartbreak away from walking out the house, ripping our clothes and becoming vagrants on the street. Many of us are, 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 are one loved one, losing one loved one, or, or, or going through one tragedy away from, from being in the, in the right state of mind to going crazy walking up and down the streets. It's amazing how humanity is structured. Because all of us are in, in the exact same boat, and sometimes we don't realize that it's God's blessings that has, that has afforded us to be where we are. And we don't have the ability to look down on anybody else. So the old song goes, that could have been Tim, me. And that is not to say that I, I don't believe that there's a lot of hurt and pain that has been incurred by the families who have lost loved ones. But you, you do realize that Audrey Hale could have been one of your daughters. I do realize that Audrey Hale could potentially represent my own daughter. As it stands right now, I have two, two young kids, and they don't seem to be struggling with any of that type of stuff, but what would be the case if they will to get older and start to formulate some attraction 
what would I do? Would I, would I disown them? Uh, is Isaiah not my son? Is, is Alex not my daughter? Even though I may not necessarily, of course, agree with the lifestyle, but does that negate the fact that they are my flesh and blood? Are they, are they not entitled to my continued love, Ryan? We so easily and readily ostracize people because they don't fit the mold of what we hold to be true, but God is still saying we need to love individuals in spite of. So I don't agree with the lifestyle. I hope you guys hear me and hear me well. But I could love the soul. I don't agree with their position, but I, I could love the person. And sometimes people need help that you and I can't give. And we need to recognize our limitations as well. But Paul says, as he's writing to this young man, Timothy, he, he wants to make a bold and clear declaration about hope. And, and here are some things I want us to appreciate really quickly before I bring this to a quick conclusion. He wants us to know that Jesus is presented in his quick opening. Jesus is presented as the personification of hope. Watch this. Jesus is also presented as the source or the author of our hope. And number three, Jesus is presented as the focus or the object of our hope. Look at these three things. Jesus is the personification of hope. He is the source of hope. And he is the object of our hope. That is to say this, Jesus is our expectation. Jesus is our guarantee. Jesus is our security. And if you didn't believe it, you need to believe it now. Jesus is our confidence. So as Paul is writing to this young man, Timothy, he wants him to understand and appreciate this, that Timothy, I'm going to have to give you some instructions. Timothy, you're going to have to encounter some things, but I want to lay the foundation before I even say anything else that our hope rests in Jesus Christ. Before you could tackle the problem and come up with a solution, let me give you some, some good foundation to work from. Jesus is your hope. If you're dealing with marital issues, before you try to decipher this and that and the other, if, if you're dealing with family issues, before you try to decipher this and that and the other, if you're dealing with personal issues, before you try to decipher yourself, understand and work from the platform that Jesus is your hope. Let, let, let me share this with you. This is, this is an, old, an old Tibetan saying that I found. Uh, it was a saying actually by Dalai Lama himself. It says this, tragedy should be utilized as a source of strength. Listen to this, church. No matter what sort of difficulties or how painful an experience is, if we lose hope, that's the real disaster. In other words, hope is the thing that we need to have. Hope is the thing that we need to find. Hope is the thing that we need to search for when we're going through times of difficulty, tragedy, and distress. You find somebody who is ready to take their life, and I'll show you somebody that has lost all hope. You find somebody that is willing to take life, any life, and I'll show you somebody who has lost 
all hope. You, you show me somebody who is willing to walk out on their family. I'll show you somebody who has lost their hope. So Paul says to Timothy, Jesus Christ is our hope. Watch this really quickly. Watch this really quickly. So, so here's the thing. As we, look at, as we look at this, I want us to understand that as we think about hope being so valuable and so important, recognize this. Watch this. Hope is only as strong as the object of it and the faith we put in it. Let me, let me repeat that one more time. Hope is only as strong as the object of our hope and the trust we place in it. So in other words, if you were to put your hope in something that was fallible, no wonder when human beings do us wrong, we lose hope. Because human beings are fallible. That simply means we make mistakes and we falter. No wonder when we put our hope in riches and the economy takes a bad turn, we lose hope because even riches can falter. The point is this. If you put your hope in something that does not have the capacity to withstand mortality, your hope is fickle at best. But Paul says, I'm not dealing with the, with the mortal things, but rather I'm putting my hope in that which, in he who which is immortal. So Christ Jesus has the ability to give us hope, not only in this life, but you remember they tried to kill him, right? You remember they tried to kill hope. But here's the thing about eternal hope. Eternal hope, though they kill him, he rose again. If Jesus Christ is the personification of hope, here's what that tells me. If I put my hope in Jesus, there may be times my hope might go low, but he has proven that he has strength to raise from the dead. So we're actually putting our hope in something that is called a living hope. Look to the person next to you and say, I'm putting my hope in Jesus. Come on, say it like you mean it. Say, I'm putting my hope in Jesus. Jesus will never fail us. I want to show us this before I conclude. I've used this text before, and this text just came, came at me early this morning one more time. I'm like, all right, all right, God, I'm going to use this text. In the book of Joshua chapter 6, in Joshua chapter 6, we encounter the situation where the children of Israel being led by Joshua, they are about to, 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 to take Canaan's land and their first encounter as they cross over the Jordan, their first encounter is going to be Jericho. Everybody knows the story of Jericho. The children of Israel would encamp Jericho a certain amount of time, seven times on the seventh day. And on the seventh time they encamp, they, they, they go around Jericho. Jo jo Joshua was commanded. They, they're going to play some music and he will command them. When you hear the music, go ahead and shout. And you know what happens after that. After they shout, what happened? The walls came, for, came, came, came down, right? But here's what I want us to see, because oftentimes if, we, if hope has to be something that's, that's valuable to us, and trust is important to hope, then God says, I need to develop your trust or your faith so that your hope could be strong. Because if your trust and your faith is weak, then you'll have a, a hope that's weak. But every now and then, as my people, I'm going to have to put you through some scenarios so that you could build trust 
in me so that your hope in eternal life will be strong. Watch this. The scripture says God came up with a strategy. And here, was, here is what the strategy was. He says the first six days, I want you to, to, to go around Jericho once. One time for six days. But as you go around Jericho once, every day for six days, I don't want you to make a sound. In other words, when you get up in the morning and you take the army up and you, you take your horns up and you take the ark up and you, you get to the walls of Jericho, I want you to circumnavigate. I want you to go around Jericho once every day for six days in total silence. I want you to picture this with me. Day number one, they, they're going around the wall of Jericho. They don't say anything. What do you think the, the soldiers on the walls might have been doing or saying to them? Don't you think they might have been hearing insults coming their way? Don't, could, could you not hear the, 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 the people of Jericho and the soldiers of Jericho saying, well, what kind of strategy is this? What kind of God do they serve? Could, could you not hear the ridicule? Or could you not see maybe the, 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 the soldiers on top of the wall looking down at them while they were circumnavigating the walls of Jericho, spitting up? You guys are not going to come up here, but, but God was doing something with them for six days. Every day they would get up and without lifting a finger as far as weaponry was concerned or without raising a sound, every day God would tell them, I want you to go around Jericho once for six days, every day once in silence. What are you doing, God? I'm trying to get you before I bring down these physical walls, I'm trying to get you to a place where you could bring down some, eternal, you know, some internal walls. Before I could bring down the obstacle that's in front of you, I need to break down sometimes the obstacle that's inside of you. Before I could get you to shout and the walls come shattering down, I need for you to have some inner peace so you could break the barrier of fear and doubt. Because fear and doubt more than anything else, it's, it's fear and doubt that trips up the child of God. Before we make a move, we, we try to strategize and think how it's going to be done. And if we can't figure out a way for it to be done, we don't want to do it. Or before we could make a move, it's a good move, but we're thinking about who is going to think this and who is going to do that and who is going to do the other. Before we could make a move, we're, we're thinking about the complainants and those individuals who will have nothing but negative things to say. Before we could make a move in faith, we're thinking about everything else. And oftentimes, we don't move because of faithlessness, fear, and doubt. Or watch this. God is developing them, in them a peace. So as they're going around the city, day number one, they might have had some fear, but they made it back to camp. Day number two, they might have had some fear, but they made it back to camp. Day number three, the fear starts to go down a little bit more because we had a day number one and two. And day number three, we go around the walls. Nothing happens, we make it back to camp. Day number four, day number five, day number six, 
I'm telling you, by day number six, it's like this, this becomes routine for us. God said it's time to get up and time to move. So guess what we do in the morning time? We hear the horn, time to move. Okay, let's go. Day number six, we're, we're going around the city. We're not bothered about it. Why is that? Because we had five other days prior where we saw God give us protection and be our security. But here comes day number seven. And day number seven, he says, I want you to do something a little bit different. I told you, walk around the walls of Jericho once for these past six days, but now I'm going to ask you to do it seven times. It's a little bit different. But there is no complaining because they learned to follow instructions six days prior. Maybe sometimes the, 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 the reason why it is we find it so hard to move sometimes, why it is we find it hard to do that which is different is because we have never really submitted and learned submissions in all the other days prior. Why do, why do people of God struggle so much with doing things differently? I might be talking to a different crowd. Why do we struggle so much with some subtle changes? Well, we didn't, we didn't know he, was, he wasn't going to preach this morning. We sang a whole lot of songs, and it, I don't know, too, too much songs. Is there, something as, is there really something as too much songs? Tell, tell me now, is, is there really something as too much songs? Is there something really as too much prayers? Is there something, well, you guys may say something different to this one, but is there something as too much preaching? Like, like, what, 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 what? Like, like where in all of this, but, but, but again, understand what I'm saying? We, we struggle with sometimes the smallest, the most minute of changes. When God is saying it's all the same thing, I just want you to just follow. So on the seventh day, and I'm done, on the seventh day, God tells them, I want you to walk around the walls seven times. But on the seventh time, it's going to be different. On the seventh time, I don't want you to internalize anything. On the seventh time, I want you to shout. That word shout there carries with it a couple really important and significant things that pertain to you and I. Number one, it's a victory cry. It's the sound that a, a, an army would make when it's time to go into battle. Do you not know, church, that we are in battle times? Could I ask you to stand? Do you not know that we are in battle times? And every single time we open up our mouths to sing praise unto God, that's our battle cry. Do you not know that? But number one, not only was it a battle cry, but also the word cry there is also translated praise. So long before the walls came down, the praises was going up. You, the, 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 you, you, you missed that. Long before the walls came down, God said, I need for you to praise me. Don't wait until you've been blessed to start praising me. Start praising me before you've received the blessing because the blessing is already yours. Let me, let me bring in Palm Sunday. Jesus, on a, on a day like this, uh, almost 2,000 years ago was making his way into Jerusalem and the disciples before he even made it to Calvary to be the sacrifice they started putting their clothes and palms and stuff in the street screaming to the top of their lungs Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest what are you doing? I'm praising you now for what you will do for me in the future before you break down the wall of partition of sin I'll praise you now Jesus 
Jesus, before you bless me with a good job, I'll praise you now. Jesus, before you bless me with a good spouse, I'll praise you now. Jesus, before you bless me with breakthrough in my family, I'll praise you now. Jesus, before you bless me with breakthrough in my own life, I will praise you now. But he has to teach them. Do you know that praise sometimes and worship has to be taught? But I thought it comes from the heart. It does come from the heart, a place of submission to God. But when we talk about praise, that comes from a place of gratitude. So let me ask you this. Are you grateful to God this morning? Let me ask you this. Do you serve a good God this morning? Thomas, make your way up. Let me ask you this one more time. Is God your hope? Let me ask you this. Is Jesus Christ your expectation? Is Jesus Christ your confidence? You're supposed to be getting louder. Is Jesus Christ the all and in all and through all? Is Jesus Christ everything to you? Yes. Well, before you receive your blessing, we got to learn to praise him.